Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. The famous opening lyrics of Simon and Garfunkel's classic track, The Sound of Silence, and a rare, daring mention of a subject that we as a society would really often prefer to avoid, depression. My name's Mark Dowd, and in this edition of Things Unseen, we begin our series on faith and mental health with a look at the relationship between faith and depression. Is faith and a grounding in God a resource for those who find themselves in those darkest and most solitary of spaces? How easy is it for religious people, especially the clergy, to admit that they're struggling and that they need help? And what more can we do to reach out to those who feel that life is pointless without purpose and meaning? Joining me today, the Reverend Giles Fraser, a regular on the BBC's Thought for the Day, the Moral Maze and Vicar of St Mary's Newington in South East London, Marie Lewis, a mental health nurse who has herself had to deal with profound episodes of depression. And the psychiatrist, Dr Richard Day, clinical senior lecturer at the University of Dundee and a member of the Christian Medical Fellowship. Giles and Marie first. Deep depression. Giles, what's it actually like when you're in that space? The characteristics for me were loneliness, solitariness, being cut off from everything else and a lethargy, unwillingness to do things, taking no interest in other things, and a sort of coming in on yourself. And then I suppose a sort of... There was something which you can describe as unhappiness, which is incredibly intense. There's a whole package of stuff. You're talking about it as though it's something in the past. Has this largely been overcome, or does it still come back from time to time to inhabit your world? It's happened twice with me, I think, in my life, and decent periods of it. I happened at school for about a couple of years, and it's happened reasonably recently over the last few years, and I think I'm probably six months past it now. Marie, you went through two bouts of depression when you were pregnant and mm -hmm. you had to be treated on the very psychiatric ward where, in fact, you were working. That's right. Does yeah. what Giles say echo or was your experience different? No, it was different. Well, I'm in my 50s and these events we're talking about were over 20 years ago. As you say, I was working as a psychiatric nurse. My depression was triggered physically in that on both occasions I was pregnant and suffering from hyperemesis, which is extreme sickness, currently made popular by royal appointments. <laughs> and I started off in a general hospital with dehydration and weight loss, and that rapidly plummeted into a really severe psychotic depression. I was offered the chance to be transferred to another city so I didn't go on my own psychiatric wing, I declined that. I'd spent several years telling all my patients there should be no stigma to this. How could I then go to another hospital and hide? I went onto that ward and it was hell. It was the closest thing to hell I can imagine. I disintegrated. I was just in constant darkness. I went to bed every night hoping I wouldn't wake up again. I woke up desperate that I had woken up again. I was pregnant and they wanted to fill me full of drugs and I was so desperate I took them. You didn't want to take them? I didn't want to take them. I cried for weeks, um, desperate not to take them. Richard, I presume this is horses for courses, isn't it? Is it the case that in some cases there are chemical imbalances in the brain which respond to treatment and in other cases where a different approach will be more appropriate, that you need a variety of different approaches in this area? 
I think I would certainly agree there's a variety of different approaches. I suspect that actually, although it's very popular to talk about a chemical imbalance in the brain, I suspect that's a gross simplification. And I think whenever people have tried to actually categorise depression, it's always fallen flat. There are different degrees. Some depression responds better to one approach or another, but I wouldn't categorise it as such. But depression's more than people just feeling a bit low one day, isn't it? Let's face it, because we all feel that. But what we're talking about is something much more grave and acute than that. Yes, I think what we're talking about is a much more all-encompassing affects the person in every aspect of their life, often can in fact make them almost unrecognisable. Marie, when you're this low in the state that you're in and you're a person who has religious faith, where is God in all this? Is it a resource that can help you or do you feel bad that you as a person of faith who's meant to be strong should be the last person to be in this situation? I think the answer to that is both. Certainly there's an awful lot of questioning as you slide into depression, which, by the way, I think is more of a continuum. But once I was there, it was interesting that I still believed God was there, even though could feel nothing. And I continued to talk to God. I couldn't pray in the sense I'd ever prayed before. It became very much um, a more real conversation, in a sense, And I ranted at God and cried at God. You said you stopped praying, but Mm. you started to express anger and tears. There's a lot of that in the Psalms, isn't there? That that shows Mm. that the the communication is still there, but you weren't aware of praying. No. I mean, some of the words I used when I was talking to God would be considered quite shocking to some. I was really, really angry. I couldn't understand why I was in this position and why I was pregnant and possibly harming my baby and why God put me here or let me be here. I also, I don't know why, carried on doing the almost habitual things of reading my Bible and singing and looking through song lyrics. That was much more a case of habit. I don't know what maintained things for me, really. I I guess I've got an intellectual conviction that God exists and it somehow just survived this. But my relationship with God fundamentally changed. But what you're saying, the feeling went, but the rituals, the habits were the things that sustained you. There was no feeling. If God was there, it was frosty silence. I argued and shouted at him, but I still felt he was there. Giles, you're a fairly bubbly kind of guy with a very extrovert persona. Isn't the danger for someone like yourself who's this shepherd of the flock, the clergyman who has to be preaching the joys of the gospel, that when you're like this, no-one wants to see the side of you and that you get sort of trapped in a persona? Um, yeah, no, funnily enough, though, that my preaching is always pretty dark. I mean, I think there's, I think often upbeat, bubbly personalities are much darker underneath. And also my preaching sort of works better with depression than without it. My theology works well with depression because that sense of not being able to have God easily graspable um, has with it a sense that you're sort of waiting on something beyond yourself to sort of reveal itself, to name itself, and it's not there. It's not within your control. It's not something I can do anything about, especially in a revealed religion situation where you're waiting on something beyond your capacity. You're just very aware you can't save yourself. I mean, I guess that's it. When you're depressed, you're very aware you can't save yourself. There's no sort of Pelagianism possible for you when you're depressed. You absolutely have to 
requires something outside of yourself in order to save you from this. So you wait on that. Richard, you've had to treat many, many patients, clients over the years. Do clergy in particular have a, a difficulty in this area because of those expectations that people have on them? I think that the difficulty that I've witnessed is much more generally amongst Christians. Whether or not it's imposed from the outside, they will often feel this need to be okay. Sometimes that might be expressed by their Christian friends. Often it's just felt within them. Um, and something I've come across a few times, when people are very depressed, they, they have lost interest in everything. Everything is an effort. Yes, they don't pray anymore. They maybe don't manage to even keep up with the rituals they normally do. And that just adds further guilt to a person who's already feeling very guilty and they can feel that they have completely messed up with God. But there's often an envy from people who don't have faith that somehow those with faith aren't really meant to go through this because they have this asset, this extra veneer, if you like. So if you do feel depressed, I presume you somehow feel that you've let the side down or God down. Well, yes, I think often that feeling is often self-imposed because as Christians we feel that we ought to not feel depressed. Giles, just, I mean, it's just such a ridiculous thing for Christians to think. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just profound. But they do, they do think they it. do, and it's, a, and I think it's just a symptom of bad theology. I mean, it's a, yeah, it, I mean, it's, a it's a symptom of very bad theology. The idea that somehow we save ourselves—that's what's behind it—that we somehow keep ourselves afloat. We don't keep ourselves afloat. We are floated emotionally or whatever in our faith by that which is beyond our control. And the idea that you know you're supposed to buoy yourself up is actually a form of heresy. It's ultimately a form of heresy. And actually one of the witnesses that depressed people can have to the church is that they can manifest and reveal the fact that we are not self-supporting creatures. We require something beyond ourselves. Which is a a very nice point to bring in, Marie, here, because you hopefully were expecting the support of your church community when you got depressed. How, I was, did, yes. how did they respond to the fact that you were suddenly on your own psychiatric ward? Did they it's rally round? Startling contrast, because I started off in a general hospital nine miles away and was visited two or three times a week. And then I moved to the psychiatric wing, which was a 20 minutes walk from the church, and nobody visited me. And I think it was a case of, well, she was pregnant and ill there and now she's potentially mad in this other place. And the sorts of things that people did say when I saw them were I had a whole load of questions about why I'd got this illness, and that interested me because we don't really quiz people when they've got physical illnesses as to what the cause is. But they were suggesting that it was some sort of unrepented sin, that it was even my father's sin, intergenerational sin, that was a new one on me, possibly some form of demon oppression or deception. And one person in the church even said it's because I'm a feminist. This is exactly what you get with the book of Job. This is Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar Mm. coming Mm. to Job and saying, oh, it's because of this, oh, it's because of this, because of Mm. unrepented sin, explaining these sorts of sufferings because people are uncomfortable with... The yes. truth about it. Yes. Absolutely uncomfortable with the truth about it. I mean, this is a, it's a classic biblical situation that you've described there. Yes. Richard, I mean, you're a member of the Christian Medical Fellowship, but, I mean, do you find that there is a lot of fellowship and support around from church communities, or sometimes are people rather left dangling like poor Marie was? I think Marie's experience is not unusual, but my thesis would be that this is just the stigma 
that is felt generally towards those with mental health problems, given its Sunday clothes. And as Giles says, you know, top it up with a wee bit of bad theology. And it's a lot of the time people have not thought this through. So the awkwardness being around a psychiatric hospital is not a unique Christian thing. Lots of people feel it. We just managed to add a wee bit more on top. I think people's experiences varied in that there are equally those who do get an awful lot of support from their their church, their Christian friends, people with mental health problems who, who find a welcome in church who do not find that welcome very much in other places. So there is contrast. There's extremes. Giles, you wrote about this very movingly, actually, in a national newspaper, and you said that your experience of God was, quote, being suspended by an invisible thread beyond your control. What happens when you're in Marie's situation, when you can't feel that? Does the thread just go? I mean, well, no, you don't I, feel it. I mean, it, yes, I mean, the points where you don't feel it at all. I mean, you know, it's, it's a condition psychologically indistinguishable from atheism psychologically indistinguishable at points, which is there is nothing here. And now that is also something that the great mystics, of course, have talked about over the centuries, the dark night of the soul and so forth, is when there is absence in that. Now, just because you don't feel it, though, that doesn't mean to say that you're not being. I mean, so it isn't just about what you experience. There is a sense you exist within a pattern of life where you know that there is something suspending you, but you don't feel it, you don't experience it. In a sense, you don't even know it. It sounds quite paradoxical. Because I'm wondering how consoling these scriptural comments, you know, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 88, Lord, you hide your face from me. I mean, it's all very well for people to say those things, but, I mean, when you're in the middle of that dark space, does it get through to you? I mean, I think it's beyond consolation. Don't even look for consolation. Consolation is none of those things are going to console you. Do people I mean, console you? No, no, nothing consoles you. There's no consolation to be had. Absolutely no consolation from any source whatsoever. And Marie, was that your That's experience? absolutely true. And no pleasure in anything. You felt numb, blank. And I think, in a sense, knowing that people had gone through this position in the Bible and there are many who had been there, at least helped me to think faith can't just be about feeling. I have to somehow separate that out yeah. and it has to be somewhere else and it has to hang somewhere yeah. else for a while. Yes. And actually, I thought when all the feeling came back, I'd just go back to normal. I didn't. I was in a different place that um, depression had actually completely changed my way of thinking about God and my relationship with God. And rather understandably, you've moved on from that church community somewhere else now, haven't you? I have. Not immediately, not for that reason, but ultimately because I needed to be somewhere where there was a broader and more progressive thinking about a lot of things that at one time I thought were important and black and white and now feel aren't. I suppose it speeded up a type of maturity, a type of growth, in my opinion. Richard, how good are psychiatrists at dealing with people with faith? Because, I mean, I can imagine potential collisions in worldviews. Yeah, I think experience can be varied. I would hope it's better than it may have been in the past, but there is scepticism on both sides sometimes. And where does the scepticism come from, from the psychiatrist? Um, I think part of it is there can be an overlap of language. So I'm certainly seeing some people who, when they get very unwell, will be talking about... God, spiritual things might get suddenly very interested in the Bible or other religious texts. And I would see that in them as simply being a manifestation of how unwell they are. Now, I would try to make a distinction there. If your worldview is more atheistic, secular, then maybe the temptation is to lump all spiritual language in together. 
And in your experience, has there also been a reverse suspicion of people of faith towards psychiatry that they don't want to countenance um, medication? Well, yeah. They think prayer is going to be the way out, not And drugs. again, partly I think this is, the, this is the bad theology coming up again, prescribing Jesus, so to speak, which again, as Marie points out, you would not do something like that for diabetes. Um, and this is where you and I disagree, because the analogy for me between this sort of thing and a medical condition like diabetes, I just don't see that at all. I mean, I suppose that's because the thing that really helped me in the end was psychoanalysis. So doing psychoanalysis was actually about facing the truth about myself. And that isn't necessarily something that, you know, it's not prescribing Jesus, but it's not prescribing antidepressant pills either. So there's a journey of discovery, which is... Uh, about who I am and about something to do with the truth, which I think was essential to breaking through my depression. But you talked about being with that therapeutic encounter as the only space where you felt you could really let all that be. Does that continue to be a, an ongoing part of your life or is that discontinued? I don't do that anymore. Um, but you might have I mean, to at some point with this. It was expensive. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm very suspicious of psychiatry mm -hmm. because I feel it sort of has a sort of behavioristic approach to it, mm -hmm. you know, either CBT or drugs or whatever. And actually, I think what you get in psychoanalysis is that there is an aspect to who it is that you are, how you encounter with the world, and that something about the truth that has a theological component to it. So for me, it really is, as it were, about Jesus. And how long did you see that psychoanalyst for? Uh, two, three years. Yeah, um, I think the kind of prescribing Jesus comment is a much more almost flippant thing of, you know, if someone becomes a Christian, then they won't be depressed anymore. Well, it's obviously which, rubbish, which is, that yeah, is, yeah. But, yeah. but people say it, and people think it. <coughs> yeah, well, they, they, yeah. just shut up, really. I still <laughs> feel that there's a need to keep um, a very eclectic approach, really, in terms of dealing with people with depression. At the point I was ill and the speed at which I went into it, any form of talking therapy would have been nonsense. It just wouldn't have worked at that point. And I think we need to recognise that depression is, is influenced by so many different areas of life, social and economic and spiritual and physical. In my case, I'm fairly certain physical was the trigger, though it may well have had some sort of predisposition genetically or personality-wise, I don't know. And there needs to be different treatments at different points and for different people. So I can't write off biochemistry on this one. No. Um, for me, that would have to stay there. My mother was a psychiatric nurse, mm -hmm. and I remember as a lad going in to her ward that she went and watching people do ECT, for instance, mm. you know, and I would see these people who were terribly depressed in a psychogeriatric ward, elderly people, and then having this extraordinary, you know, yeah. ECT thing where they're getting big electric shocks, and then actually, and no one knows why, still really no one knows why, they really did and very quickly transform and were much, much better. Now, I mean, I can't deny that those sorts of transformations take place without expensive and long-standing psychotherapy. You know, they do. It is absolutely right. There has to be some sort of physical component to that. I just don't think it was in my case. And there's a presumption yeah. that it's always going to be one sort of thing. And I think you're right. Yeah. They're, and that presumption is things. wrong yes. because we're missing out on lots of other important yeah. ways of helping people. Yeah. And the church in particular can have a role in those, I think. I agree with you on that. But I would want medication to be there for those it really needs to help, particularly in those very M severe Marie, cases. Marie, in, in your case, your descent, probably the right word, into this kind of mm. tunnel of darkness happened 
during two very specific episodes of pregnancy. Yes. Does the fact that that happened 20 years ago, do you sort of think that you're out of the woods or does it still linger in your background that mm. you had the potential to go there once and it might still possibly reoccur? I've, I've never given up on the idea that I'm frail. <laughs> never given up. And in fact, I think that puts me in a, a stronger position than maybe lots of people out there who still don't know their trigger. They don't know what could trigger it. I mean, I think it's about one in three people suffer from a depressive episode in their lives. At least I've got some inkling of these symptoms. I diagnosed myself, actually. I told the obstetrician I'm getting depressed and he didn't listen. And several weeks down the line, it was really obvious. And that's why I ended up having a lot more psychiatric treatment than physical during my pregnancy. But I still always feel this could happen to me again. And I have got to guard and care for myself and nurture myself so it doesn't. I think it's going to be there for my life, really. If I could bring in Richard, there'll be people listening to this broadcast because it is part of our season of programmes on faith and mental health. They'll possibly be thinking of themselves as people who are recognising some of these symptoms. Mm. What should you do, Richard, if you're in a position like that and, and you want to take some action? Where do you go? I think, as we've been hearing, there are a number of options. You can go to your GP, you can go to a counsellor, you could go to, in the first instance, just somebody who you trust. Because sometimes people, if they've not presented, so to speak, they will struggle to see things or how people will react to them. So go to someone you trust, first of all, to tell them how you feel, and maybe then getting some help to go elsewhere. And Giles, presumably you're fairly acute about noticing when people go missing at church, for instance, who suddenly they were in the pews and then they're not there. Are these the sorts of signals that you would look out for in terms of your care for your flock? That's very difficult, actually. What um, Do you know, I think some people are very good at hiding it. Mm. I mean, I think that's the other thing. It's not just something that it's really easy to spot. I mean, and the, the point you said about me being you know, jolly cheeky, I mean, I'm, you know, I can hold down a job and have it. I can actually act pretty convincingly fine. I can be a life and soul of a party. I can do stuff on the radio and actually it's there. Mm. So it isn't just... In its purest form, it's debilitating, but you can be a high-functioning depressive. Um, so it isn't just people who are in bed all the time or being lethargic. Can I ask you something on that? In the 50 years I've been attending various churches, I've never once heard anything preached from the pulpit on mental health. And I find that staggering. And I think that alone means that the, I don't know, the worship guitarist and the and the verger and the minister and the lady who runs Sunday school can hide their depression because it's just not out there. Yeah, it's not talked about, no. Well, it's part of my quibble, so we might get, you know, slightly controversial, but this is part of my quibble with more evangelical churches, I think, mm. and that is that everything has to be so damn upbeat all I'm, the time. I'm with you there. And has to sort of always end on upspeak and it always has to be... And what's, mm. the, what's the thing you can take from this, which is a sort of like your message yeah. for the... And actually, sometimes it's really, really not like that. And I think probably a more Catholic tradition is much better able to mm. articulate that stuff. It isn't always trying to have an answer. It always isn't trying to sort of solve it for you. It allows you sit and be. I certainly have preached about depression actually quite a lot you see when I say you recognize it in other people 
I mean, you know, you definitely recognise it in the psalmist. And you definitely recognise yes. it in, yeah. in a whole range of other, in Jeremiah, in, you know, in yeah. all sorts of writers in the scriptures. And a final question to Marie, the fact that you've been through this, can you pick these signs up in other people? Have you been able to build on that to reach out to other individuals? Um, I'd love to say yes, but not always, because I think actually people do hide this remarkably well. And I think if the church suddenly did say, right, we're going to stand alongside all those with depression in solidarity and do something for them, they might be very surprised who turned up. Maybe this broadcast will initiate a flurry of sermons on mental health from the pulpit as a result of these contributions. But on that note, we'll bring our discussion to a close. My sincere thanks to the Reverend Giles Fraser. Marie Lewis and Dr Richard Day for sharing their experiences with us today and to let you know that we'll be back with more issues in our mental health season early in 2015. We'll be looking at issues such as dementia, addiction and body image. My name is Mark Dowd and you've been listening to Things Unseen. For those of you who have a faith and for those who believe there's maybe more to life than the merely material and observable. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this programme, you can get more information by going to our website at www.thingsunseen.co.uk. Things Unseen is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.